Welcome to Guards Down. Join your host, Greg C. Washington, as he explores how people from various backgrounds have overcome doubts with trauma and complicated grief. If you're stuck, know someone who might be, or want to be in a position to help someone, you're in the right place. We can't wait to share the tips and tricks we've learned on our journey to healing and putting our guards down. Hey everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Guards Down. I have with me today a very, 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 very special lady, Bridget Bell. Bridget, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing excellent. Excellent. Power went out earlier today. Of course, you know, when it storms in New Orleans, uh, it came near flood. So, uh, can we get power back on? So. Happy belated Father's Day again to you. I appreciate that. I really do. Uh, that's one of the greatest joys in life is being a father. Um, and the title doesn't just mean blood, but, you know, to the ones that you love and hold close in here. So I appreciate that. Well, look, enough about me. Tell us about yourself. Oh, Lord. About myself. Um, let's see. I am originally from and currently in the Army. So I say that because dad was in the military, but both of my parents grew up in Mississippi. So I consider Mississippi home if I had to pick a place on a map. But all I've ever known is military life. Uh, so when I was in high school, we came back from him being stationed overseas in Germany. So I spent a decent amount of time in Germany growing up. But I went to high school in Virginia the D.C. area, so a lot of people assume I'm from Virginia, but I'm actually from Mississippi. Um, Southern Bell. Yes, of course. Uh, and, I, and I feel like it's important for me even more right now to say that because my last uh, assignment on active duty in the Army was in Jackson. I purposely went back home, um, and it gave me a lot of perspective about where I am in my life right now and how to shift into the next phase of my career while also remembering where I came from. So, really. Gotcha. And so, let the audience know you're currently in school. You're going after your... M PhD. Mm. <laughs> I get this degree. I am in my fourth year of the clinical psychology doctoral program at Jackson State University, the Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi. So uh, Jackson State is one of two historically black college and universities that has a doctoral clinical psych program. Howard and Jackson State are the only two in the country. So the beauty of my program is, is as far removed as it is from the military, what I do know, I get to talk about being black and psychology of being black and um, and just multiculturalism in general. That's a huge part of our program. So one more year and I'm done. One more year. The psychology of being black in, in a target-rich environment where your school is one of the first of many that is trailblazing, right? Just to follow, so that's amazing. Before we get into this, because of course you know the show was about how different cultures deal with trauma and grief, 
Ask, I've asked a, a, another person on the show before about education. And so, all things constant, if you knew you were going to be great, which you are, does it matter if you go to a Ivy League school or an academy versus an HBCU? That's a great question. So I have to answer that with a brief story first. So when I was in high school, it was probably my sophomore, junior year, I spent a lot of time in the education center because I, I was new to the area. I didn't know a lot of people in high school first starting out. So I would spend a lot of my time prepping for what's next after high school. I go to the career center, talk to the career counselor, get all the little applications I could. And I will never forget the day I came home with two packets, Jackson State in one hand, Alcorn State in the other one, which are the two rival HBCUs in Mississippi. My mom went to JSU, my dad went to ASU. So I grew up, you know, wanting to be in the sonic boom and wanting to be a golden girl and just knowing that I had the best time of my life going to HBCU. And when I came home and I told my parents, like, I filled my applications out, I'm ready to start applying to college. And I will never forget, they kind of looked at each other and they were like, okay, where are the rest of the applications? And I was like, well, I'm going to pick between these two. It already tears me apart to have to choose because one of y'all is going to be mad with me. But, like, I'm going to HBCU. And I, I remember them saying to me, like, absolutely, you can. And if that's what you want to do, you should. But they also recognized that my identity crisis of growing up in the military overseas, but then coming back to an area where there's a lot of culture and trying to figure out how to be black, that that was a phase in my life. And if I made the decision about college just on that phase, I may regret it in the future. So they were like, you know, feel free to put these down as, as two options, but go back and dig deeper and expand your horizons. And don't think that just because we did this, you have to. So my answer to your question would be, it does not matter where you go to school, as long as what you're getting out of the environment enhances what your goals are for the future. My reason for wanting to go to HBCU was because I was trying to figure out how to be a black woman in 2000. I, I just, I was very confused. Like I didn't grow up listening to the same music or talking the same way or watching the same things or having the same discussions in the classroom as a lot of my family and friends at the time. And I wanted to find that. But, you know, once I found West Point, and I love your t-shirt, by the way, I'm, I'm jealous a little bit, but I like mine right now too. Um, once I found West Point and realized that I could continue to work on the identity side of being a black woman in other ways and still go to West Point, it was a no brainer for me. Because if I'm gonna be in the army, to your point, if I'm gonna be great, I wanna go where they're gonna train me the best for that. If I had decided I wanna be a black scholar, a scholar of African-American studies, I would have gone with the HBCU route, but so it's a question that I ask myself regularly when I think about my daughter, like, what's she going to, I've told you this, what, what, what am I going to tell her when she's like, where should I go to school? That's great. And I appreciate you sharing that insight about school. I know that that is a conversation that is necessary another one that's necessary on top of this one and 
five, I've talked to a good number of people that went to HBCUs. And, you know, growing up, we're, we're, we're known, we're, we're the minority. Mm-hmm. Going to an HBCU, you know, the way they spoke of it, they was like, this is that one time in your life where you're the majority. Mm-hmm. You have positive people around you that are striving to do the same kind of things you're doing. And, very true it's a good feeling well let's get into it let's talk about PTSD and complicated grief after you take sorry dad no I'm the same way I have certain numbers that will you know of course the kids their numbers come through and they come through no matter what so that happens to me <laughs> no this is good okay well let's get into it ptsd and complicated grief and so i know one of your goals is to help change the way the army views and sees ptsd and complicated grief Mm-hmm. Right, so that we can better make uh, a target-rich environment for our soldiers. And I keep saying target-rich. Uh, something about what you got going on behind you, you know, just really brings out that military spirit. You have pictures of diverse women in uniform in the military, and you also have an old photo from West Point, you know, the classic, and then you have some art back there that is kind of like that red, white, and blue, you know, touch and feel to it. I have a lot going on back here. Yeah, yeah. No, I like it. We're definitely going to get into this art side because I know you've got some stuff to share with us, so let's make sure we hit that. All right, so growing up, did your parents or the people around you teach you how to deal with trauma and grief? I would say I was taught what, A, what the Bible says about both of those things. That was a huge part of our family culture and dynamic. And also how to accept. But I don't really think that that was always how to cope those are two different constructs. So my dad, for example, he would always say, you know, don't worry about things you can't control. We're not meant to live forever, which are two very valid and true statements. But as a child and as a a young adult, learning how to be in acceptance mode and realize that, yeah, you're going to face grief no matter what, and possibly trauma, it wasn't really something that we really sat down and talked about consistently, but there was always this cling to your faith and cling to the way that we raised you. Um, and being from such a, as you know, big and close family, there was always that community to surround you when you were going through. So how to cope really was a community thing. So I don't know if, looking back if i'd say i was really taught but i would say 
we push through and say, you know what, no matter what, we're going to get through, whether it's trauma. And in, in my case, you know, my dad went to Desert Storm when I was eight. And I don't think I really processed how much trauma was associated with that until I was much older. Um, but we always talked about him wearing the uniform, serving his country, doing his duty, and that things may happen, but we'll get through it. So the family dynamic was very, very much a part of that for me. Gotcha. So uh, you were taught what the Bible says. You were taught how to accept. And coping is a community with the three things that I got out of it. So that's that's cool. I, I'm, and I haven't heard it said like that as far as, you know, coping is a community effort. And so let's let's build upon that shortly. The Bible portion of it is very interesting because, you know, of course, one of the things that I'm looking at is how the different cultures see you and treat and overcome, you know, trauma and grief. And the number of people that I talk to it's very prevalent in African-American cultures that we lean heavy on the Bible when it comes to uh, dealing with trauma and grief in our life. Absolutely. And so I had a conversation with one person where we talked about the Bible and we talked about what our culture has endured. So to go from slavery to racism uh, to just socio-economic like strains right yeah all these barriers right our barriers put in place um, we've been taught how to survive versus like how to live right the whole survival versus thriving conversation. Yeah. And so the, the Bible is kind of like that balance in between the two. And for some people, they get to the point where religion, once they, they embody it, once they accept it and, and humble themselves, religion is what pushes them to past survival mode and into thriving. That's the case for a lot of us. I would agree with that, yeah. It's interesting that you said that. So with that being said, do you think there are different cultures, like different cultures, Greek, uh, 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 even COVID? I do. I really do. I think for me, I've seen it in my career. Uh, so I've been in the Army 16 years now. I'm in HR. And so a lot of what the HR community does in the military is collaborative. We work with the medical side, we work with chaplains, we work with uh, the PAO and different things like that. And what I've seen both on the leadership side of helping commanders find resources for their soldiers and on an individual level, just basic customer service, there's their culture underpins everything we do. And to your point earlier, in the army, my opinion, Bridget's opinion is we don't talk about grief. 
we talk about trauma we talk about ptsd we we call it ptsd and i i personally think i'm on the side of the conversation that says we should drop the d and call it pts um but we talk about those things more now than we have in a long time but when was the last time in a unit we talked about grief these days normally it's surrounding a suicide of a fellow soldier it is not a continuous part of the here make sure you take care of yourself conversation um, and, and some people may have better experience with that in their units but that's just my experience and so i think being in constant reaction mode instead of which is the process when you're dealing with trauma instead of being in some form of preparation mode if you look at grief as an inevitable process we do our soldiers a disservice by not striking some balance between talking about the two that's just my personal opinion but culture is is a huge part of that which is why so many people choose different ways and different means to find support because we all come from different backgrounds so there's not one standard cookie cutter approach to when i'm dealing with something this is what i'm going to go do it's based upon your background and for some people seeking help from a psychologist or a psychologist just wasn't a part of their psychiatrist was not a part of their upbringing or their culture so they may not buy into that method like some other culture would yeah no that makes sense and i i, I like how you, you talked about in the dreaming yes so you're not the first person that i spoke to that has mentioned this a lot of people have a stigma around having a disorder. So when you tell someone that they have PTSD, you know, they, they kind of want to fight against it to begin with. But to just say post-traumatic stress, right, that is something that is it's relatable. Absolutely. People get stressed as a inevitable part of life, but it comes in different shapes and sizes a very visceral reaction to severe trauma is a normal response for a human being. So to call it a disorder, not to say that some instances it doesn't create huge issues for a person's ability to function in life, but just the concept of the label that we put on it is a part of the reason why we have the stigma that we have. Okay. Well, one stigma that I have right now is I say right throughout all of my conversation. You do. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I am going to count how many times I say right throughout <laughs> this podcast. So hopefully that I'll just correct myself, you know, through it and it won't be an issue. That's it. Just, just put a finger up and be like, count that one. That's one. Okay. So I, I appreciate you, you know, speaking on that part. And then when you talk about within your units, it's not talked about within the military. Two things with that. One is the up-tempo of the units. I talk to a lot of guys and you know, well, a lot of soldiers, and they've expressed that the, the up-tempo, the, the, the tick of the unit is such a fast pace that 
they don't even know that they have PTS or that they're dealing with something because it's all about get the next mission done and complete it. What's the objective? Get it finished. And then the other part is being in a leadership role and not wanting to express the human side of yourself in fear that you will be looked down upon and won't get the advance, you know, in your career like you're supposed to. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of research that supports the reality that it's the transitions in soldiers' lives or any service member's life that bring on the level of stress that leads to disorders that leads to suicidal ideations, things like that. A lot of us assume it's combat, um, but there's research that supports that transitions are just as impactful. So retiring, coming off active duty, PCSing or changing duty stations, if there's anything about that that's beyond the realm of what we would consider normal, um, having children, you know, getting married, getting divorced, like all these are transitional parts of life that when you add the service component into that, it is very hard sometimes to live this double life of when I'm in uniform, I'm on, I'm going a thousand miles a minute, like you just said, versus I also have this life and these things, these factors that are at play that are going to impact my ability to balance the, tr- the two. So it's important to note that transitions are extremely, extremely uh, part of the reason why we have some of the, the statistics we have in the military. Gotcha. Yeah, I think the transition is everything. More so, you know, back then versus now. Back you marched, you got on a boat, you had days, months, weeks to get to battle. And then once you finished your mission and you came home, you had multiple days, months, weeks um, to process it. Nowadays, you can be at war one day and turn around and be home the next. And that time to process what you went through, uh, the window is, is so short that you, know, you, you don't even give a, you're not even allowed to give a, yourself a chance to process. And for some people, how you process, again, is cultural. So if you don't see a version of yourself that relates to that culture in any other part of your life, it's very hard to find that ability to incorporate uh, within the grief discussion we always talk about people say get over it or cope what you're trying to do is incorporate the grief into your daily life so whether that's the rituals or the uh, behaviors that we see with a lot of you know funerals different things and there's a grieving period and then people can get back to what they would call normal incorporating the grief into your day-to-day life is getting through that so-called process. For some of us, if our cultural view and perspective on how to cope does not fit within our job space, it's going to be harder to get through that process. And, And I know we're going to talk about complicated grief, but at times that's where complications can come in. Anytime a person is not 
able to get to that point of incorporating grief into their life where it doesn't keep them from living a normal life, whether it's work life, social life, then it can become complicated grief. And when you talk about culture, I've had a discussion and not only are we looking at ethnicity as, as you know, your culture, but we're looking at corporations has their own culture and the military has its own culture. And what do you feel about you know the, having a military culture and being able to incorporate you know this into a soldier's everyday life? I think the culture of the military often is a reflection of the culture of the leadership. So if you have leaders who maybe been in a similar situation and so they've gone through that themselves, that unit may just culturally cope better, if that makes sense. So I do think that military is a culture, but I also think the next step of that is within certain types of units, certain career fields, there's also subcultures. And if a subculture is counter to the greater culture, that's also a time where you could see complications arise. So, so a lot of people talk about, you know, um, maneuver type units as the, the main example, because that's what we think of when we think of those who deploy often. Um, but when you think about, for example, the drone community, that's a culture within itself. They have their own set of behaviors and thoughts and feelings about what they do. And so how you could take that culture and compare it to another type of unit are very different. And so I think it's important as leaders, especially that we recognize that because leadership really is watched 24 seven. And if your leader is saying, oh, don't worry about coping, you'll get through it, get over it. What message does that send to the entire organization? You know, I think a corner with that but I just think that is one example I do see more senior leaders talking about these things than say 10 years ago but we still have a lot of work to do so what's been your experience dealing with trauma or grief my experience with trauma my personal experience or grief or grief yeah so I'll start with the trauma because I'd say going back to my younger years in the army (laughs) was more trauma focused for me than grief. I was a battalion HR officer when I deployed as my team up here in that picture. Um, And I, as a side job or an additional duty, as we call it, I was the unit victim advocate. So for a little over three years, whenever there was a sexual assault in the unit, I was the first person in the, um, leadership that was notified so ironically this was also when the current program that we have for restricted and unrestricted reporting had just started i was in one of the first classes at forklist for that process and within maybe seven or eight months we were getting ready for deployment within a year from me taking the class we were downrange, and it was lost on me what vicarious trauma was until probably years after I got back from Iraq and I, after leaving that unit 
But vicarious trauma basically is when you witness someone else's trauma or you are in a situation where they are retelling the trauma to you. And in that case, that was something that I dealt with pretty regularly. So soldiers going to CID, the criminal investigative division, to, um, you know, do the, the forensic reports and going to the MP station or going to the hospital or treatment facility, like all those things where you're, you're the first line of support for the soldier. I can tell you the number of cases where I would wonder, like, is this person going to even be able to finish the tour of duty? Is this person going to be fully functional at work? And being the HR person on the one hand, and then also being the person who responds, you know everyone in the unit. So there were times when the perpetrators were in the unit, but because a soldier filed a restrictive report, no one else would know but me. And, And that was very hard of course the hardest trauma is that first point of injury when you're with the individual right when something happens but the continuous retelling of the story and the engagement um with the soldiers by far one of the most developmental things i've done and it's given me a lot of empathy for survivors and and things like that but it was traumatic in a way that it took me years to really deal with it's, And I think mostly because there was no closure, you know, especially if the soldier filed a restricted report, there was no investigation, nothing happened legally. Then in, in your mind, it's like, you know, that the person got away with it. Sometimes when they filed unrestricted reports, especially if you're downrange and, and there's no evidence, physical evidence, or, um, you know, there's just circumstances where it can't be prosecuted just to know that justice is not served was was very stressful um so that's on the trauma side i think that was most impactful and then my next job after that was command and i did have a lot of soldiers themselves who had been diagnosed with a lot of different psychological disorders or addictions or had major medical issues um hiv um were recovering from different things, major like illnesses. And we were kind of like a transitional unit in that way. So there were legal issues, there were medical issues, there were things in the middle. And and it was hard for me to turn that off at night. You know, was when I was deployed, it was when someone knocks on my door, they come in to say someone was assaulted or someone was killed. When I was in command, every time the phone rang, it was did someone so kill themselves because They've been suicidal for months or, you know, there just was always this being on edge waiting for the next thing to, to fall apart. And I had great support from my first sergeant, who was the first person who told me I should be a counselor, by the way. Um, shout out to him. And I think for me when I left those two jobs my my body paid for the trauma Um, and then after that I dealt with personal grief uh, losses that were people close to me or um, even phases of life I guess I I would say because you don't just grieve death you grieve certain parts of life as well and so for me 
those things came to a head and then the army was like yeah we think we think you have lupus um so we might be giving you a medical board here soon so for two years i didn't know what was wrong with me um i was in grad school and i was sick and i could not get anyone to take me seriously on the medical side but i also didn't i felt like i was losing it like i'm like well if every time I go in there, they're like, well, you look like you're pissed off and you're upset. A, are you saying that because I'm a black woman? So that was my first thought. Then B, if you were sick and you no one could tell you what's wrong, do you be angry too? Like, I'm not crazy, I'm sick. So that, that was probably, I don't know, maybe someone would call that traumatic on some level too. And I was grieving the fact that I may be losing my career and thank God I had a great nurse practitioner who helped me figure out that I actually had celiac and not lupus. And so I was able to adjust my diet, um, work on different ways to holistically approach that. And thank God I, by 2012, 2013, I was getting back on track. But, you know, it took someone very wise it took my thesis advisor to help me realize that it was self-imposed in that I had not learned how to cope with everything that I was dealing with. Like you said earlier, it had been go, 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 go since the minute I stepped foot at West Point in 2000. And 10 years later, my body's like, this no, we're not doing this anymore. We're done. We're, we're we'll see you whenever you decide you want to take a knee. And thank God I found that. But it did take me back to: Do I know how to process things? Do I know how to cope? Do I know how to self care? And so that was a huge part of my grad school experience was getting my life together medically and then psychologically, and then realizing that there's probably purpose for me in this field because I've seen it firsthand. So if that, you know, I know that's a lot of information, but it's, it's like trauma, 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 medical issues, more trauma, lots of grief. And now here I am in school looking at grief as a part of my research. Yeah. Note that, that, and I appreciate you opening up and sharing all that, you know, with us um, and I'm glad that you are healthy and you have found your way and on your path for someone that is in the thick of it and even for someone that is on the outside looking in what are some of the signs that a person is dealing with complicated grief and trauma both feelings and thoughts Complicated grief, I would say one of the biggest signs that I've noticed, that I've read about, and that therapists who have worked with a lot of grief clients talk about is sleep disturbance. So when you're asleep after a period of time, for some people it's six months, for some people it's a year, but when you can consistently report that you're not sleeping on a level that could lead to psychosis in some ways that's that's definitely an indicator and this is this is 
Bridget, this is not DSM-5 certified, you know, diagnostic criteria here, but this is just some of the things that I've heard people talk about. Um, when I took the complicated grief training at the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University, one of the things that stuck out to me that they talked about was how when a person avoids parts of their life that used to be normal for them in a way that is outside of the room of what we would consider normal and it negatively impacts their life, that's also an indicator. So what, what a therapist would be looking for or anyone would be looking for in that case, for example, if you don't go into a certain room in your house anymore because it was that person's room or you don't always set a place for them at the dinner table years after they've died. You know, for some people, and then this is why culture matters, there is a certain level of honoring the person you've lost and incorporating those behaviors into your life that is acceptable and normal for their culture. So we're not trying to mix those two. If it's acceptable for your culture, you shouldn't just assume that it's strange or abnormal. But if after a certain point, the person who's lost someone is not able to find a way to get back into that room or that space in the home in a way that incorporates that into the life, that is also an indicator. Some people will never go to a certain store again or a church um, because that's where they went with that person. Are these all examples of, of complicated grief? No. But are they indicators that you can look for? Absolutely. Um, time, of course, is the biggest the biggest indicator because it does take time for a person to grieve. But if 10 years later, the person still is significantly impaired, that's definitely a sign. Yeah. For trauma, you asked about trauma too. Uh, for trauma, I think for me when I was a commander, a lot of the things that I looked for were triggers for people. Uh, some people have a tell, so to speak, when when they feel a trigger arising, they their behaviors change outwardly. And so you can recognize that. Being able to kind of have a heads up from the person if they feel comfortable with you sharing those triggers helps. So I had soldiers who would say, hey, ma'am, you know, I got PTSD loud noises just don't work for me so i'm not coming to formation uh, we had we were at fort Myers, so right where the old guard is for those who are familiar with that so they would they would they had howitzers they had i mean it, there were days when it would be loud and we would always have to be cautious of just remembering that there were some people that couldn't handle those types of triggers well so that's just one example but triggers are huge and most people who have a diagnosis or are in treatment, know what their triggers are, whether they're able to, willing to share them or not, it's, it's something else. But as a leader, it's important to be, be cognizant of that and pay attention when a person, when it looks like they're having any type of physiological response, sweating, the um, anger, anger is a huge one. A lot of people confuse, um, or ignore anger and don't relate it to depression or PTSD, but between hypervigilance, so always being amped up and like on guard and anger, you can see where people's triggers come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, so when you know, just speaking on that, you you touched home for me on like a couple of things. Uh, just personally, personally, I had to deal with PTSD and also complicated grief. And I remember two things I had to identify with this, and so I recognized that talking to someone about what I was feeling and what was going on wasn't necessarily helpful to me. Like it didn't solve the issue. I was still angry afterwards and I was still hurt and depressed and sad because my mind that's freezing on. Right. But I will say that talking about it consistently with people that I love and cherish and respect, even though, yes, it still makes me feel sad and, you know, still acknowledge their loss, it at least allows me the chance to better communicate and express. I guess my feelings, if I have them, <laughs> right? And so, you know, that's that's that was one part of it. And so, there being, if I have them, right, right, if I have these feelings, because it's hard sometimes to identify what am I really feeling right now. And I'm glad you brought that up because often people leave therapy more frustrated, more angry at times more unheard than they did coming in. And it's easy to be like, this is a waste of my damn time. I'm not coming back. (laughs) It it reminds me of, um, and this is just a joke. It it reminds me of of the scene when they talk about, if if you wanna see the most disgruntled person, right? Piss somebody off after they came from church. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In the parking lot, cussing everybody out. <laughs> exactly. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, though. Yeah. And so the second part that, you know, that, that I was going to mention or talking about is I remember the day when I got the notices that you know, my, my friends died that Emily was was killed. And I was talking to Mama Jay. And I left and um, she was my mom away from, from home when I was up at West Point. So first time away from everybody, you know, the tempo at West Point is the same as military. You are always moving on the go and go. And you have old grads military professors, their wives and their family that take you in and just give you a little piece of home that just make you feel, you know, feel good to get you through. Laundry, they let you sleep. (laughs) Give you those three things and you make it for one more week. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You, You know, and so, you know, she was there and she was the one that notified me that Emily had died in combat. And I remember that night 
and it was like a bad dream. And I remember being so angry that I punched a hole in the wall. And I even remember her voice. And she heard, you know, my feelings. She heard me cry. She heard, you know, my, my fist go through the wall that loud. And she was like, baby, baby, calm down. You know, calm down. And oh, I was so angry at the world. I didn't know what to do. And I'm, I'm glad I had her voice because she, she was at least a calming factor for me, you know, right then and there. And one of the things that she shared with me, she, she was like, you know, the memories that you have of her are your memories. And so you, you own those, you keep those. And for a very long time, I didn't want to share any of that because they were my memories. And I felt like if I shared them with someone, that I would lose her. You're giving it away, yeah. Correct. And now that I'm getting older and I'm fucking losing my memory, I'm like, if I don't share. You know, talk about losing your memory, yeah. If you don't share, you'll forget, yeah. Correct. And so, you know, with that saying, I have to acknowledge that a person dies twice once in the physical form and also the last time their name is said. Mm -hmm. And so when I acknowledged that and understood that it's okay to share, that in itself was therapeutic. And to be able to, you know, say her name, Emily Perez and Scotty Pace, that's just my way of making sure they live another day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's so powerful. And I know, and I've shared this with you before, so of course I have no problem sharing it with the world. But when I first went back, I went back in 2013 to teach at West Point. Um, and when I first went back, I think for maybe the first six months, I really struggled with that imposter feeling of like, Emily is the one who should be here. You know, living so close to the cemetery, uh, I spent a lot of time working, walking on the way to work or back to work through there to see her and other people, friends of ours. And I think for me, my way of doing what you're saying, because my memories of her were from gospel choir, were, were different than yours. But telling the gospel choir cadets that I worked with then, you know, let me tell you about my friend who represented the same choir um, back when, when I was a cadet and led this organization and, and, you know, paid the ultimate sacrifice. That for me, helped me bring her with me, I guess, if that makes sense. Because I fundamentally believe she would have been a phenomenal sociology uh, professor. And I think telling those stories, talking about her, talking about other friends, classmates of mine, that was extremely important. Um, and so you're right, saying those things out loud, they matter, which is why a lot of people get a lot of positive progress in grief support groups where you're with other people who are going through similar. Yeah, I know. I knew you can raise a side eye to that, but a lot of people get a lot out of grief groups because it's not just sitting in a room with one person talking about it. It's sharing and listening and, and, and helping one another. But I'm, I'm glad you said it. A person does die twice. And if we don't tell these stories and do exactly what you're doing with guards down, 
we miss an opportunity to help someone else learn how to cope as well. So that's really good. Yeah. And so with that, and this is a, another two part, how can a person help themselves and how can someone looking in help that person when dealing with grief and PTSD? So one thing that I, I've only worked with a few families, not necessarily like family therapy, but like a child is being brought in for services by their mother or um, maybe a client talks a lot about issues with a sibling and they come to a session. I think one of the things that sticks with me that really good professors have driven home for me is just like when you're flying on a plane and they say the adult needs to put their oxygen mask on first before putting one on the kid. If you don't take care of yourself as the caregiver or as the best friend or the spouse or whoever, you are no good to the person who's grieving or who's dealing with trauma. So with that, that means A, being aware. So being self-aware, knowing your limits. And as often as we want to say, I'm here for you no matter what, call me any time of day or let me know what I can do. Being okay with the fact that you may not be able to solve the person's problems, but you're sitting there with them through that process, that's hard for some people to handle. And and if you aren't able to handle that well, or if you give, 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 and you never replenish your energy, then you've now created a situation where two people are struggling, two people are suffering. And so it's really important to figure out how, if it's a family situation, to incorporate healing as a part of the family dynamic. Um, But I think it's also important to know that as much as the Army talks about the battle buddy system, that's effective to a point, it's still on the individual to be self-aware, self-monitor, to say when they need help, and then to take the steps to get that help themselves. So I, I definitely think to your point about two parts, it's one, the caregiver also making their own healing a priority and an individual being self-aware enough to know when they need to get help. And for, for a lot of people, that comes in many different shapes, fashions, and forms. I'm not one to say that therapy is the only way or that medication is the only way or, or anything like that. But if you consistently know that you need help and you don't take the step to figure out what works for you, you may be missing out on a life that is effective and and joyful and all those things that we get when we reach the next phase of coping with those, specifically those two areas. Now, you had spoke earlier about your own holistic approach to your healing and grief. And so, you know, I, I just want to take this moment to speak on that, right? Because you have (laughs) (laughs) so you have 
you have treatment, speaking with your therapist, counseling, you have prescriptions, and let's talk about holistic approaches. What else is there? Yeah. Um, I'm a firm believer that physical training is therapy. So for a lot of us, that is a huge holistic approach, whether it's weightlifting, yoga, running, biking, walking, swimming, all the things. Um, And I think where a lot of organizations have gone right with that is making it a community event. So anytime you are with other people and doing those things, that's therapeutic. Because if your body is better, your your brain is going to be better. I'm a firm believer in what we call the biopsychosocial model, um, which basically means biology, psychology, and social factors work together. Either to they can either work together to help a person heal or to exacerbate a problem. So if you biologically you're not sleeping, you are not don't have a good diet, you're not taking care of yourself. Um, psychologically you are dealing with things and socially you're isolated that's a trifecta for disaster whereas if you're seeking the therapeutic approaches or medication and you're taking care of your body and you have social support you are much more likely to at least see progress not saying that it can heal everything but i think those are are huge there's much more out there nowadays about supplements and where they play a role in helping our brains recover. Um, there's also a lot to be said about meditation and anything, <clears throat> excuse me, in the mindfulness arena. Um, there's just so much out there. And I feel like we've turned a corner, especially within um, the black community. I can only speak for my my community but we've turned a corner where we're willing to talk about those things it's no longer just you better pray about it because i i can honestly say maybe up until 2011 i still in my own life took the approach of if i pray about it and it doesn't get better then i guess it's just what it's going to be like that was that was how I dealt with it, and that's, that other picture you mentioned is, is my gospel choir picture from my senior year at West Point. Um, my faith is a huge part of my life, you know that. But God didn't make me stupid, and after a point when just going to church and praying about it, having a spiritual advisor, reading my Bible, and listening to my devotionals, when that's not enough, then I had to take it a step further, you know. So. The holistic approach is partly what helped me heal physically when I got sick. And it's also... Just to that point, right? When you talk about taking a step further, I just wanted to clarify because there may be someone out there that might misinterpret it. When she says taking a step further, how I took it was meet God halfway. Oh, right. I a hundred percent agree because it took, you know, people make things so simple. Sometimes one of my friends one day was like, Bridget, God made everything. So if you want to put God into it as to why, let's say going to therapy may not be best for you. Um, God made therapists too. So 
he might have made the right therapist for you and you're just being so biblical that you're not giving yourself the opportunity so yeah meeting god halfway is a really great way of putting it so thank you for that clarification okay well what's been the toughest part on your journey the toughest part on my journey that is a great question I'm sure I could come up with 18 different answers, but I guess it really comes down to the same thing of striking a balance between the running, running, running and taking a moment for myself to recover. I, um, since my divorce in 2006, I've pretty much been, you know, on my own and able to run, 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 run. I travel when I want to, no matter what type of job I'm in. And I I think I misconstrued the freedom to do what I want with sometimes it's okay to be free to just do nothing. And so the older I get, the real I, the more I realize that I have to find that balance. And some people would push back on that and say, you never have balance. And on some levels, I agree with that. Um, but I have to be willing to practice what I preach to my soldiers, my clients, my friends, and I'm working on that better and better every day. I think you'll keep me honest, I guess, in that regard. Um, but that's definitely been my biggest struggle. Okay. So the balance to take a moment to recover is, is the biggest part. And notion of free to do nothing. I think that part right there probably the most because when you have such an immense amount of options, when you have, you know, all these different options, you can do be anything that you want to be. Not being able to pick and therefore you do nothing and so you don't get anything accomplished. Uh, that ambiguity, like that, that doesn't sit with me. So I'm more of a, all right, you got this is your wheelhouse. You know, within this, what do you want to do? Go. And I think for me, I've spent 16 years doing that and being in school now is the first time where I've really not had the regimented um, go, 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 go. It's go, 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 but it's go to class. It's go to, you know, meetings with your, with your clients. It's go do your research. It's much less structured. And so I've had to figure out how to be most effective with my time. Uh, and, and shout out to the Tillman Foundation. That's why I'm wearing my shirt today because they are huge supporters of my educational process. I am a 2017 Pat Tillman Foundation scholar. And because of the foundation, thank you, because of the foundation, I'm able to take a pause from my regular job and my regular paycheck and not be living on the street because I do have financial support and a community of scholars who look out for one another, support one another, uh, lift each other up. And so if not for Pat Tillman's family, recognizing how much of a academic he also was, uh, the foundation wouldn't exist to do what it does within not just the military community, but 
the world. And so I, I really do appreciate them helping me get through this degree. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then, you know, I was wondering why you didn't have you know, West Point. I know. West Point, I know. Like that, you know, um, you're, you're a Tillman scholar and you're a part of that organization and it's not something people want to get into, you know, like, my hat goes off to you now. You got it. <laughs> right. Okay. So the next part is hurt people hurt people. Right. So have you hurt people in the process? And you can talk about this on an individual level or, you know, like in theory and how do you make amends right that's the biggest thing that I, I want to get to is how do people make amends when they hurt someone so if if I'm answering this for just general people not for Bridget I would say it's it is sometimes lost on people how impactful a simple conversation can go in making amends some people will go so far as to say apologies are you know things i think a simple you know can we talk about what happened can get you so much further than just a blanket yeah i'm sorry and moving on so for me, and to answer your question on a personal level, I think, I don't know if I've directly hurt people during the times of my life when I've been dealing with my own things and, and balancing my career and, and being, you know, being able to go home with, for family whenever I needed and wanted to. But I do know that I've, I've figured out a way to protect myself, so to speak, from further disappointment and frustration. I joke a lot of times that I don't like people. I love people, but there's a lot of times when I don't like people. And because of that, I have tucked myself away in this, my little cave, you know? And so I can go for years and not care about things like social media or um, staying connected but that's not because I'm purposely trying to hurt people. At times in my life, I was protecting myself from being hurt or from further frustration or trauma. And I know specifically when I was sick and I was way out in California, so it wasn't like I was physically around people, friends and things like that a lot. I just, I just kind of kept to myself. And so for me, figuring out a way to stay connected with people is so, so, so important. It's always been important, but now for me, it's a priority, if that makes sense. So, because I don't want people to feel like I don't care when they mean so much to me, to me in my life. I'm very grateful for the friends that I have and, and, and the people I've worked with and things like that. So keeping in touch is my way of making sure that I make those relationships a priority, you know? 
and, and being transparent. Most people tell you I'm an open book. <laughs> There's very little that I don't share or won't share with people that I, that I trust. And so just being able to say, oh, yeah, back in whatever year, let me tell you what I was dealing with. What were you dealing with? Those things make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into seeking professional. Okay. So part of this is about cultural sensitive therapy. When shit has hit the fan, people don't care who their therapist or the clinician, who they are, what they look like. They just need to talk and get it out. And so, you know, I encourage that, you know, whoever's out there that, you know, when it's not such a dire need, do you think that if your therapist looks like you or have similar experiences as you, that the connection will be deeper and the treatment will have greater satisfactory outcomes? I personally do. I think that being able to connect with the person both on both sides, what we call a therapeutic alliance, so the relationship between the therapist and the client, that connection, I personally think, can be made faster when you're working with someone who you have, you can make a connection with, you can relate to. Um, empathy in itself, there's many people who will ask the question, is empathy a trainable skill? Um, there's different views on that, but most would venture to guess that you're more empathetic to people who are like you because you can relate to them more. And empathy is a huge part of any type of psychological intervention. And so do I think that I can have a great relationship with a white male therapist? Sure. Do I think it will take longer for me to get there than if I'm meeting with a a black female therapist? I absolutely do. Um, And and so I think it's important that we recognize that. I think it's important that, especially, you know, within what I'm familiar with the military, we acknowledge that we have a disproportionate, you know, group of mental health professionals where you don't see a lot of minorities um, who are delivering those services. And so that's something that we have to acknowledge. The numbers have gone up, definitely, but it's something that we have to acknowledge. You know, when I was a commander and I was taking soldiers to Walter Reed on a regular basis to get them checked in to inpatient therapy, I never saw a person of color that was working on the on the unit, doing those things. You know, I'm sure they were there. I just didn't see them, but I was there a lot to be, you know, able to kind of notice that the trend there was one doctor one time in an ER who was of color and I was shocked when I saw him but whenever I go up to the actual inpatient unit I remember thinking like it must be really awkward being a person of color inpatient because there's nobody in here who looks like you you know and then here I am you know looking like me walking around and standing out like a sword thumb. So it's things we recognized even when we were cadets at West Point because the numbers were what they were. And when you see that constantly day in and day out within your organization, it takes a toll. It definitely does. Okay. 
what would that be? <laughs> what efforts do you have going on about what you got going on? I have some things going on. So I am grateful for the support of Guards Down and Mr. Washington and um, many mentors along the way who have helped me see how to incorporate the things that I'm passionate about personally into this field, the mental health field. So going back, like I said, to when I was in grad school the first time, I remember it was a joint environment. So we worked with a lot of different Air Force, Marine Corps, Army, Navy. And I would ask my my peers, my friends, like, what do y'all do with your uniforms? Once you can't wear them anymore, you don't need them. Like, is there a place where you can turn your stuff in? Because I'm so sick of toting around just a bag's worth of uniforms. And what I realized is we all had the same issue. We just hold on to our stuff. Because no service member is just going to randomly throw away a bunch of uniforms when you have worn them for years. You've gone to war and back with them. Like, there's just something about, I'm not throwing this away and then there's a security issue. So I came up with this thought back then, that if I can find a way to repurpose uniform items in a way that's artistic, in a way that is therapeutic for me, because I love arts and crafts and things like that, then maybe there's a way to raise money for causes that matter, culturally sensitive therapy, homeless veteran uh, programs, anything that helps connect a person with whatever helps with their healing process that's my goal and so i started brogan's is the name of my company i started it to get after that of course you know things like work have gotten in the way in, in life and becoming a mom and things like that so I'm, I'm just getting my feet under me and really figuring out how to move forward with that but I am happy to report that last weekend I hosted my first paint and plant event virtually. And it was an opportunity for us to um, use some form of, of art therapy. I'm not certified, so in case it was wondering, I'm not an art therapist. I just like to paint and do different things. So we painted these, these little potted plants, you see one behind me, and talked through grief. We talked through gratitude and how to show that and incorporate that into our lives and we also talked about growth and so those are the three areas that in my mind are important to my healing recognizing the things that I'm grieving recognizing what I'm grateful for and recognizing where and how I'm going to grow in the future and so that's what I'm incorporating into my business basically Um, at some point in the future I'll, you know, be able to take my uniform off and and pursue this. Um, And then going back to what I said about the uniforms, you can see this is my Memorial Day uh, staycation, I guess you call it. I kind of sat down here in my basement office on Memorial Day and and took some uniforms and some old buttons and some things and, and made this collage as a way to really focus my energy I get angry on Memorial Day, I'm not going to lie. It's not one of those days where it's just, let's go grill and, and hang out. I always reflect to the point of sometimes the day ends and I'm like, whose memory am I honoring by being mad right now? So I tried this year a different approach 
Um, and to, to your point before, I thought about Emily. I thought about, I have a great uncle who was a Buffalo soldier that I never knew, but he was my grandfather's favorite uncle. He went off to World War II and he was missing in action for years. It wasn't until 2011, I think they found him. But I've never gotten to go to where he's buried in Italy to connect to that part of my family history. And I was really angry because last year I was going to go, but someone got sick. And then this year, COVID. So I was like, how do I find a way to channel my energy, my thoughts, my reflection into a work of art? And so that's just one example of something that I came up with. So you know, going forward, that's what I want to do. Help people take their old uniforms, take, you know, their thoughts and their their views on things and incorporate them into works of art to help tell the story. Just like you said before, you tell that story, you have that thing that you can look at and, and remember. It helps you heal in a way that just talk therapy or just um, psychotropic medication may not address. Well, with that being said, how can people find you? How can they sign up for your art therapy? Sign-ups are coming. I'm hoping to find an actual certified art therapist that I can work with here in the future. My goal is to do three events a year starting out. And then from there, like I said, once I figure out the next phase of my military career do that but brogans.org is my website b-r-o-g-a-n-s.org is my website and i'm sure my contact information will be on on the podcast but please do reach out i mean there's just so many things so many people i've met who just want to find another way to channel their energy and i love talking about this with folks so i'd love to connect with anyone who's interested in Hey, we can do anything virtual these days. So if that's what it takes. We can be happy. Other part is do more together. Yes. Do more together. Do more together is the West Point Association of Graduates, Black and African American alumni organization. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of do more together myself, Mary Tobin and Jamal Robinson back in 2016. We started the organization to address four areas. So mentorship, whether that's within the community of of Black and African-American cadets and staff and faculty members, mentorship within those who are still serving and those who are no longer in uniform. Networking, so connecting our grads with one another. There are approximately 3,000 African-American grads out of a population of 53, 54,000 grads total. This is a very small percentage and within that percentage even a smaller number of women and so we think it's extremely important for us to build our network to help tell the story of, of black west point graduates and then fundraising so finding ways to get money back to uh, initiatives clubs programs at the academy the gospel choir is my um gets all my money when i have it and then finally are recruiting so helping recruit not just cadets but staff and faculty members of color uh, when i was a cadet when we were cadets around the same time there were no more than maybe three black female uh, professors at a time and when i went back to teach the numbers were the same 
that's a 10 year gap where we haven't really cracked the code on that. And so, you know, it's one thing to just assume that everything on the institution side will address that void. We as grads can also help address that. So those are four things that we do. Uh, do more together org is our website two with the number two instead of the to so check us out you know um i'm really glad that you are a member of do more together as well and and from day one have been supportive and helping me just come up with with ways to get after some of our target areas and our numbers grow and they grow and we've been really excited the last month to, to host town halls where we talk about some of the current issues going on and how they relate to the academy or the military. Um, so there's there's always a way to get involved. So I'd encourage anyone, and that's black, white. You don't have to be black to be a Do More Together member. You don't have to be an alumni, an alum, but, but it also is a community of people who support things that are specifically targeted at the black and African-American population. Here we go, all right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us. Thank you for having me. This was there. Any last words of encouragement or words of wisdom you'd like to share? The only other thing I would say is to just remember, like, in those dark moments that people might have, because there's someone out there that might listen to your podcast and it really resonates with them where they are and where they're trying to go that there's probably five other people out there in the same situation. You're not by yourself. You're not in this. We're not meant to do any of these things alone in life. And so for me, it's taken a lot of people reminding me of that for me to incorporate that into my work life, my personal life. And so that's, I think the biggest thing. And, and you say that a lot when you, when I hear you talk about guards down and I just want to, to amplify that no one's doing this alone well hey everyone this is Greg Washington and Bridget Bell with Guards Down telling you guys to and gals to stay safe stay encouraged and stay engaged thank you Greg and to beat Navy beat Navy That's it for this week's episode of Guards Down. We are counting on you to join us in the mission of spreading awareness about trauma and complicated grief. Be sure to give us an honest review, subscribe, and share with someone this could help. Catch you next week.